Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So glad to see you. Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you for your great mercy and your kindness, that you guide and lead us with your eye, that your hand is never far from us, that your, uh, your direction and your love and your mercy is poured upon us. And we praise you and we thank you for this gathering this morning. We ask you to touch uh, Pastor Frank and bring your message to us through him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. <clears throat> treasures that last. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 20. Some time ago, two old friends were dying. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man was outside of Christ, and the poor man was a strong believer. One day the rich man was talking to one of his other friends and says, when I die, I shall leave my riches. When he dies, he will go to his riches. Thus, in just a couple sentences, the rich man summed up the contrast between the two of them. The man worthy of everything, in reality, had nothing. And the man that had nothing, in reality, had everything. These two men are a vivid illustration of what Jesus said to his disciples. Do not lay up yourselves the treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Does that mean we renounce everything we have? No, not unless God commands us to do so. But it does mean that we should be able to commit everything we have, including our lives, to Christ and put his will above everything else. The hope for today, we take nothing with us into eternity. Let us spend our time, resources, and energy on laying up treasures in heaven. We will never regret anything done or given for the cause of Christ. And everybody said? Amen. Good morning. If you'd like to stand, join us, and open the eyes of our hearts.
You may be seated. This morning's Old Testament reading is Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs> Our New Testament reading today 
comes again from uh, 1 Timothy, this time chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we cannot take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth, from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For just at the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light, so brilliant that no man can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power in him forever. Amen. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a found, good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. You have called us to follow in the way of your risen son and to care for those who are complaining, not only with words of comfort, but with acts of love, seeking to be true friends of all. We offer our prayers on behalf of the church and the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the world, the universe, all belongs to you. You created it but you share it. You put, put it in our hands so that we may live, we may have the food and the clothes that we need to be comfortable. Lord, we ask, but you do call on us to give back. So as we give back today, our gifts, our tithes and our offerings, we ask that, they, that you bless them, that they be used to further your kingdom, Lord, and strengthen our knowledge of you. This we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.
you like to rise for the doxology? I was struck as we were singing uh, Take My Life um, with this. Uh, so take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to years to years, O Lord. And that's what we're doing. We are, um, we're, you know, we're coming before him as we do on Sunday mornings. And, and we're asking, first of all, that God take our heart and form it. You know, that he form he formed those emotions and all that stuff in, you know, in our hearts that it conformed to him and that he forms it to be what he wants it to be. And he takes our mind and he transforms it, as it says in Romans 12, um, that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we're, we're here so that we can be transformed. Um, the word is, metam it's, it's a word we metamorphosis from, but... It means, you know, it's changed from one state to another, and we're, we're, we're praying that our, our, uh, our mind is transformed from one state to another. Um, slowly, one, you know, one precept, precept upon precept, as the precept studies uh, talk about. And then take our will, that, that our will will be God's will, that whatever God wants, that, um, I, you know, I've learned over the years, um, do what God wants you to do um, and trust him. He's a good God. He loves us. Uh, he's for us. He's not against us. He wants our very best. And, and a lot of our Christian walk is just, um, you know, learning to trust that God is good and whatever he tells us to do, it's a good thing. Now, it may not appear in the short run, it may not appear like a good thing, but in the long run, We'll look back, and I, I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me, and I look back and I say, okay, God, I think I get it now. Okay, I, I, I didn't see it at the time. I didn't have it, you know, it wasn't all in perspective. But I see it now. I, I see that what you wanted is the absolute perfect thing. Um, and, you know, it just takes a, a trust in him. So anyway, that's what we're doing this morning, and we do every Sunday morning. We are seeking to become more like Jesus Christ. We want to be like him because he is perfect and we're not, if <laughs> you haven't noticed. <laughs> so let's pray. <laughs> Father, we come before you this morning and we're asking that you form our hearts through your word, that we will be formed into and conformed to what your, your heart is like with your passions and your desires and um, and just that we, on the inside, Lord, that our insides would be like your insides. And, and that our minds, Lord, would be, would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That, that our whole being would be transformed out of your word. 
And we believe that your word is, uh, is the spoken word, is the written word in the, uh, of God. It's the, the word given, and that your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we preach and as we study your word, your Holy Spirit takes that which you've written and applies it to our lives. And then we pray for our wills, Lord, that our wills will be conformed to your image and that we will trust you enough, uh, trust in your goodness, trust in your direction, trust in, in, in what you have deemed for each one of us, Lord. And whether we completely understand it, Father, we look to you and we trust in you because we've learned that you're good. So deal with us this morning. Transform us into your image, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, our human desire is to be righteous and to be free of guilt. And everybody um, deals with guilt. Okay? Um, we've all looked back on our past and, and we've done things that we regret. Um, we've thought things we regret. Uh, we've, we've had emotions that we don't like. Uh, and so on. And so we want to be free from guilt. Every, every human being on the face of the earth has to deal with that. Uh, uh, Shakespeare in uh, Macbeth, uh, the famous line, out, out, damn spot. You remember that whole line? Um, and what, what uh, it was Lady Macbeth, and, and Lady Macbeth and Macbeth had, had killed another king, and and she can't get over the guilt. And so she's rubbing her hands and she's out, out damn spot. And she's trying to get rid of, of the guilt of what they've done. And we as Christians, we have the, um, the blessedness that we have a place where we can take our guilt. And that Jesus has freed us from guilt, freed us from condemnation, so that we can live a life of righteousness. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, in John chapter 1. And it's a long passage today, so um, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Don't go to sleep before we even get started. Now this was John's testimony in John 1.19, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? <clears throat> John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Made straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had also been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then we're going to actually concentrate on verse 29 a little bit later on. But the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me 
The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Okay, so <coughs> John starts out, and this text starts out with uh, priests and Levites coming to John and asking him who he is. And, and, um, and it says, he says this, I am not the Christ. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Or I'm, uh, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So the first thing he did was to identify who he wasn't. And sometimes the best thing that we can do as people and as Christians is to confess who we're not, you know, what we're not. Um, and the deputation that came to Acts to talk to John was conformed to two different sets of people. <clears throat> the first was the priests and the Levites. And in preparation for this, uh, I ran across this, this thought that I just, I, I don't know, I had never put it together in my mind before. Uh, John was the son of Zacharias, who is a priest. He was a priest, okay? Remember that whole story at the birth of Jesus and so on? Therefore, John, in, in the lineage, is passed on from priest to priest, generation to generation. So John is actually in the lineage of being a priest. So the, the Levites and the priests come to him, and they're saying, boy, you're sure unusual for a priest. You, know, you ought to be up in the temple doing the, doing the work that priests do in the temple. And here you are, you're on the other side of the Jordan baptizing people. That doesn't quite fit, so who are you? And they wanted to check him out. His ministry didn't fit the, you know, the, uh, the picture that they had. The second group was the Pharisees, probably sent by the Sanhedrin. And they had the role of examining everybody that you know, would stand up and, and preach and be, you know, and be a teacher. They had the responsibility to examine that person to see if indeed they were, they were okay. Um, they wanted to make sure that John was not a heretic. And of course, then they also did that with Jesus in examining everything that Jesus said and did. But uh, So sometimes the best thing we can do is identify who we're not. And so that's what John is doing. And he's setting the record straight. Um, and so there were a lot of, you know, probably a lot of rumors floating around. People asking, well, who is this guy, John, out there it had been 450 years since there had been a prophet in Israel, and they're wondering, okay, who is this guy, this prophet? Let's identify him. So he says, first of all, I'm not the light, okay? Uh, because he's said, I came to show you the light, but I'm not the light. Secondly, he said, I'm not the Christ, okay? Now, he's not talking here about the title of Christ as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh, but he's talking about the, um, the generic sense of a Messiah, okay? And a Messiah means it, it, it's a word for the anointed one um, in the anointing. And he says, no, I'm not the one who is anointed like that. Um, and the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to appear. And, of course, then John points them toward Jesus, but he says, I'm not, I'm not the one. Um, and there were different concepts of what the Messiah might look like. 
one who would bring peace over the earth, one who would bring in the reign of righteousness, one who would be a great national champion. That's, what, that's you know, what, why they couldn't understand Jesus, why the disciples couldn't understand him. A supernatural figure from God, a prince from David's line. There were all these kind of images in their minds of what this guy, uh, you know, what, what the Messiah would look like. And they said, okay, John, are you that Messiah? And John says, no, that, that, that's not me either. Um, and then they said, are you Elijah? Um, 2 Kings 2.11 as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. Okay, now this is Elijah, who is then passing on the prophet, uh, the, the role of a prophet to Elisha, and they're walking along, and it says this, Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Okay, so Elijah never died. And so the Jews were, were saying, okay, Elijah's going to come back again. Uh, since he never died. In Malachi 4, 5, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Okay, so they're expecting Elijah to come back again. And, and we, it's, we, we see here that John was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5. Um, and it was the Jewish belief that before the Messiah came, Elijah would return to herald his coming and to prepare the world to receive him. Particularly, Elijah was to come to arrange all disputes. He would settle what things and what people were clean and unclean. He would settle who were Jews and who were not Jews. He would bring together again families who were strange. It was even believed that Elijah would anoint the Messiah to his kingly office, as all kings are anointed, and that he would raise the dead to share in the new kingdom. So there are all these expectations about Elijah coming. And in Luke 117, it says this, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, so, so John then comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he says, I'm not Elijah himself return, but I'm coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And we see in Matthew 17, 3, that when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, um, he is talking with Moses and Elijah. So Elijah did come back and talked with him. Um, so the Jews were saying, well, John the Baptist must be Elijah. And he's saying, no, that's not me either. And then he said, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So the prophet was the prophet par excellence, the, you know, the, the, the prophet who would come. And the very earliest Christian teaching was that the prophet referred to Christ. So John says, I'm none of those. That's not me. But then he says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So he says, I'm not those things, but I am, I am one that, you know, going back to Elijah, I'm the one who says, who is preparing the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard services have been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord, hand, Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And then this verse, verse 3. A voice of one calling 
in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, made straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John the Baptist then says, I'm the one that's preparing the way. That's who I am. And in Near Eastern, it was a Near Eastern custom that when a king would go visit someplace, that he would send representatives away uh, in front of them, of the king, to prepare the way, to smooth out the highway and, and to get the people ready and to do all the preparation. And John says, that's what I'm like. I'm like the one that goes out, like the, the approaching king, the king coming into the land, and I'm the one to go out and get everything ready for this king. And he says in verse 30, this is the one I met when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And so he's saying um, that Christ, even though I, I'm older than he is, Christ is the one who is, is from infinity. He's infinity. He always was. He's preexistent. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So um, he says he didn't know him, probably he's, he's referring to, maybe he never actually met John before, we don't know. Or maybe he's saying that I didn't know that he was the Messiah until I was baptizing and the Spirit came down like a dove on, on Jesus. And he said, and God had spoken to him and said, that person is the one that's the Messiah. So, John baptized in view of the coming of the Messiah. He baptized in order that the Messiah should be made manifest to Israel. So, so John then is the one who is preparing the way for the king, the Messiah, the coming one. And then verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and I, boy, this, this phrase is just powerful. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's revealed to John. I mean, John didn't, you know, he wasn't just thinking that. God spoke to him and said, there it is. There he is, John. There's the Lamb of God. Now John, it's really interesting because John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also the bridge to the New Testament. And really, this is kind of where, where the... Where the uh, you know, we had the prologue and so on, but this is where the, the narrative now shifts from John the Baptist to Jesus. So what does the Lamb of God mean? Um, I talked to you, I, maybe a last week, maybe a week before, but uh, John would use words that con conveyed all kinds of different images in the minds of the Jews. And that's what he's doing here. When he says Lamb of God, and it's only used here two, twice, used in these two passages, um, and, um, you know, th those words, those particular words, the Lamb of God. Um, so, in the minds of the Jews, then, there's all these images that they're thinking of. And the first is the God-provided Lamb of Genesis 22, 8. Okay? Now, let me read that. Abraham, this is the story of Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham is in, um, is sent, God speaks to him and says, I want you to go into the promised land. And Abraham gets into the promised land and he says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to raise up seed after you. 
uh, as great as the sand on the seashore, you know, there's, um, through your seed. And John is finally, at 100 years old, he finally has Isaac, the, the promised one. He had Ishmael, but, but he knew that Ishmael was not the promised, you know, he wasn't the promised son. He finally had Isaac, and so God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to go to Mount, the, the region of Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. It's, it's, a, it's a hard verse, to, you know, hard story to really understand. And then um, in chapter, uh, in Genesis um, twenty-two thirteen, 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So here's the, here's the story. Abraham gets ready. He's, you know, they're walking along, and Isaac says, where are we going, Dad? Where's the sacrifice? And and Abraham says, what? God is going to give the sacrifice. God will provide the sacrifice. Don't worry about that. So they get there. Abraham raises, uh, raises up the knife and to slay his son. And God speaks to him in and, and verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, <clears throat> what, what that means is this. Um, Mount Moriah... And I think, I've talked, I think I've talked about this before. I can't remember exactly, but Mount Moriah is the exact place where Jesus is sacrificed, okay? Uh, they went three days' journey. They went up to Mount Moriah, which is the, you know, where, actually where the Dome of the Rock is today. And, and so God says, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. Don't you worry. God did. God provided his son as the sacrifice. And God was testing Abraham, but God said, that's okay, I know where your heart is now, but I'm going to provide the sacrifice. You just wait. Second image that they had is the Passover lamb. And every year, uh, and here's the backstory: in Exodus, the children of Israel are in Egypt, and they're down in Egypt, and God spoke to Moses way up in Midian and said, I want you to go down and deliver my people out of Egypt. And so Moses goes down there, and he um, confronts Pharaoh, and God gives ten plagues that are going to come upon the nation of Egypt. Um, Exodus 11:4. So Moses said, "This is what the Lord says about midnight." Okay, now this is the, now the last of the ten plagues. The last plague is that the firstborn of every of, of every family in Egypt would be killed. Every firstborn, verse 5, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So everybody, every living creature in Egypt is to be, or the, the oldest son is to be killed. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. And then in Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, okay? So God says to, to um, Moses and Aaron, he says, this month is to be you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the holy community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, okay? Verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So they were to take... They slay a lamb, 
and put the blood on the doorposts, on the sides and on the top. What does that look like? Oh, yeah, it's the cross, okay? There. So here's a four type. Remember, everything in the, um, in, is concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. Everything um, in the Old Testament is a foretype, a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in the New Testament. So God is preparing them, saying, you put this on, and, and that, that blood then, when I pass over, that's where the term comes from, when I pass over, the angel of death passes over, I will look on the blood, and I will pass over that household. So all the families of the, of the uh, Israelites were protected, whereas all the families of the Egyptian families uh, the firstborn were, would die. Okay, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will, come, will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So every year, the Israelites then would celebrate the Passover. Okay? Uh, just as uh, kind of a side note, um, they still do that in, in the Muslim world. Um, they, it's kind of a twisted story of this, but it's the same kind of thing. And we've been there many times on that, on that day when they would sacrifice, they would have a lamb, sacrifice the lamb. Um, Kurban Bairam, they call it, the, the sacrificial holiday. Uh, it's very familiar in, in Islam. It's not for the same reason. You know, it's not celebrating this whole, you know, it's, it, it, it's a different reference, but it's the same, uh, the, the same kind of thing that they did. Uh, and, but then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So all of that pointing toward Christ, our Passover lamb. Third thing that it conjured up in the mind of the, uh, of the Jews was that it was a lamb led to the slaughter out of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. All right? So they're thinking of all, you know, Isaiah. Um, Exodus 29:38. This is what you're to offer on the altar regularly each day. So every day, the Jews would have a reminder every morning, there would be a lamb slain upon the altar, and every evening, two lambs, a year old, offer one in the morning, the other at twilight. Okay, so, so every day then, there are all these reminders that there's a lamb, and the lamb is being sacrificed, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, as it, as it says. Okay, <clears throat> the next image, and this is not so much for the Jews, but this is for us, Christians in Revelation 17, 14. And this is, this is now getting toward the end when the Christ is coming back again. It says, um, they will make war against the Lamb. Interesting, call it a Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful following. So the Lamb becomes the lion who becomes the Lord and the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I mean, wow, what, a, what an image, huh? A triumphant lamb. <laughs> I mean, lambs don't triumph, right? <laughs> Anybody that's ever worked with lambs, they don't triumph. They're, they're just bad. They're defenseless, and that's why you have to have a shepherd to watch over sheep. But 
That lamb, the lamb with a capital L, is the triumphant lion of Judah. The last image is a guilt offering, Leviticus 14, 12. Then the priest is to take some of the male lambs and offer it, offer it as a guilt offering along with a log of oil. He shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. So um, this one commentator says this, a guy I, I absolutely love, William Barclay, and he says this, in one word it sums up the love, the sacrifice, the suffering, and the triumph of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The love, the sacrifice, the suffering, and the triumph of Jesus in one word, the lamb. Okay, isn't that amazing? And then another commentator says this. He is making a general allusion to sacrifice. The lamb figure may well be intended to be a composite, evoking memories of several, perhaps all of the suggestions we have canvassed. So, in other words, all of that together is what, is, is what comprises this lamb, the lamb of God. And so John uses a word which brings all kinds of different images together to talk about the coming Messiah and that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the second part is, who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, wow, what a, what a statement, huh? And the word takes away, uh, the Greek word means to bear away what has been raised, to carry it off, to remove it completely, to remove the guilt and punishment of sin by expiation, or to cause that sin be neither imputed nor punished, okay? So our sin is laid upon Jesus, and Jesus expiates that sin, okay? What that means is he takes it away. It's gone forever. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Your transgressions, my transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Our guilt given to him, his peace given to us, his righteousness given to us, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the centerpiece of the Christian faith right there. That Christ took upon our guilt, took upon our transgressions, our iniquities, as he hung on the cross, Jesus took those upon himself, and in, in, in the place of that, we become righteous because of his righteousness, and he became guilty. He bore, he didn't become guilty. He, he bore the guilt, our guilt, our transgressions, our iniquities on him. He took them to the cross, and, and they are expiated. They are taken away forever. That is what Christianity is all about. And this is a concept we call in the you know, in theological terms, propitiation, okay? And what that means is this, Exodus 25, 16. Um, in the Ark of the Covenant, okay, and remember there was first a, a, an Ark in the tent that was a, it was a portable structure while the children of Israel were out in the wilderness. And on that Ark, they had an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide. 
And then it says, verse 21, Exodus 25, 21, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim, so there were gold, golden cherubim, and in the place, it, on, the, on the cover of the ark, on that cover, between the two cherubim, is the mercy seat, or the atonement cover. And it says there, there above the cover, between the two cherubim, <clears throat> that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. And give you all my commands for the Israelites. So the presence of God to the, to the Israelites, first in the, in the uh, tent that was out in the wilderness, and then in the temple itself, <clears throat> that in that place, God would meet with them. So <clears throat> then, Christ becomes our atonement. Christ becomes our atonement, to our, our mercy, and so that God looks through the sin, through the mercy seat of Jesus Christ, and looks down at our sin, the law that is contained in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so God revealed to John the purpose for which Jesus had come into the world, as the one who would bear the wrath of God on our behalf and become righteousness on our behalf. As I said, we, our guilt, our are all that junk of, you know, that should have been ours is put upon Christ. Romans 3.22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us cannot, we are unworthy of the glory of God. We'd have to be perfect in order to approach God. And are justified freely Okay, we are justified freely, just as if we'd never sinned. By his grace, solely and completely because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember in, um, earlier on the chapter it said that the law came through Moses, but truth, grace and truth, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So Jesus redeemed us from the weight and the wrath of God. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Now God, in order to be just, his wrath had to be appeased. Okay, he couldn't just say, well, you know what, forget about that whole wrath thing. You know, I, I, you know, I, had, a, I had a bad dream. I'm, you, know, <laughs> you know, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. No, um, it had... God's wrath towards sin had to be appeased some way. Because all of sin falls short of the glory of God. You know, we don't, we don't understand how bad sin is um, and, until we start seeing a deliverance from that sin. I mean, the more that we walk with Jesus and we look back and we see, you know, we look back at our lives and we say, wow. God had to forgive that, and God had to forgive that. And all that stuff that's in us, we don't, we don't have any concept of the depths of sin in us until we start climbing back out through sanctification, through becoming like Jesus, and we look back and we say, oh my goodness, I, you know, there was sure a lot of sin in there. Um, but we don't realize how bad it is. All of that was put upon Jesus Christ. Everything. And not just once 
and for all, but as we sin, as we go through our lives, you know, God forgives us our sin. We confess our sins, and we put those things upon him, and his righteousness is, comes upon us. So propitiation then. Christ is our sacrifice of atonement. And he became the sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes propitious, propitious or favorably disposed toward us. God could not be favorably disposed toward us except that Jesus Christ took our sin upon his shoulder. Sin could be forgiven only if the penalty for sin were paid. Justice had to be done. So God is both loving, all right? In our generation, um, it's all about the love of Jesus, you know, and all that, and that's great. That's, that's half of it. But there's the other half that, that so many in this generation simply do not understand the wrath of God towards sin. And if you, you know, <clears throat> unbelievers, oh, there's no sin, okay? Well, if there's no sin, there's no wrath of God. If there's no wrath of God, there's no propitiation for sin through Jesus Christ. The penalty for our sin was poured out on Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us. So it's not our righteousness, it's not what we do, it's what Jesus did. 1 John 2.1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks of the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, Wayne Grudem, a... a um, theologian said this, Jesus obeyed the Father in our place and perfectly met the demands of the law. And he suffered in our place, receiving in himself the penalty that God the Father would have visited upon us. That's, you know, I mean, that's the center of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Romans 5, 16. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. All right? So as Adam and Eve sinned, condemnation came upon all of us. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more? Yeah, how much more uh, shall, shall we receive the righteousness that, and justification that comes through Jesus Christ? Hebrews 9, 26. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus, all of that Old Testament stuff that we talked about, all that, those uh, four types that we saw in the Old Testament, it's all, it's all looking toward Jesus who came and he appeared once at the end of the ages to do away with sin. To do away with sin. He, he came, Jesus came for the express purpose of taking your, your sin, my sin upon his shoulders so that he could impute righteousness to us. So it's no longer my righteousness. It's no longer that I'm a good person. It's that Christ became the perfect sacrifice. He lived a, a life of obedience. 
Jesus was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The first time he came as a lamb, second time he's coming back as a king. <laughs> he's, coming, he's coming back as a conquering king, as a lion. The lion of Judah is going to come back. And, and those who have been redeemed in his first coming, the lamb, the lamb through the lamb, then become citizens of that kingdom. Okay. And then verse 32 through 36. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove, remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who had sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will, be, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And then he says this, again, twice. And this is the only time it appears in the New Testament, these words. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. All right, so, so John knew what he was doing. Uh, God revealed to him, and, and he said, the one that where the dove comes down and it remains on him, the, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus. And in the Old Testament, you know, there were all kinds of, instances where the Holy Spirit would come on the prophets and it came on Saul and different uh, times when the Holy Spirit would come on people, but it was all temporary. But the Holy Spirit came on Jesus and remained upon him. And the word, you know, the word is it remained on him. It continued to be. It didn't go away. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at the baptism. I don't know before that what, what you know, I mean, what, what happened before that? But, but when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came on and remained with him, on him. So that Jesus is then God's chosen one. Verse 34, I have seen, I testify that this is the Son of God. John knew it was the Son of God, and we know that Jesus is the Son of God when our sins are placed upon him and his righteousness is imputed to us. First Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed to you, down to you from your forefathers. We have a whole culture. Um, we, we are raised in a culture um, all around us, you know, in our schools and uh, friends and family and all that kind of stuff. And there's, and we've talked about this before, and there's, there's some really good things that we were taught, and there's some really bad stuff. And that combined with all that sinful nature that we have, Christ came down to redeem us from all of that junk. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was re revealed in these last times for your sake. That's who Jesus is. So what does that mean to us? What it means is that um, all of us, all of us, as it says in Romans 3, all of us are, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can approach God and say, you know, Jesus, I really tried to do it. I really tried to live a good life. I did the best, you know, and, you should see my brother, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm sure I'll have better than my brother anyway. Um, and, but, but we all, I mean, the Word of God says all of us fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us that can say, I, you know, I can do it by myself. I can get into heaven by myself. Don't you worry, I got it. You know, um, none of us can do that. 
But the only way that we can approach God is that Jesus Christ took our sin upon his shoulders so that the righteousness that we could not earn is imputed to us, is given to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. That is the center of the gospel. And it's not just, you know, a one-time event that, okay, all right, yeah, I did that. I, I prayed, you know, uh, 20 years ago and I received Christ. And that, that's great. But Christ continues to be our defender. He continues to be with us. And, and we all sin all the time, don't we? Anybody, you know, I, I always, <laughs> I've, I've said this a <clears throat> number of times. I don't know if I've said it here, but um, that if, you know, you say, well, you know, I, I really haven't sinned. I'm, I'm really a pretty good guy. And I'll say, okay, I'll make you a deal. We'll play a video of your thoughts from the time you woke up this morning until now. <laughs> and and it's, going to be on, it's going to be on the screen back here, your thoughts and your actions and all the things that you did in just, you know, four or five hours, however many hours it's been now. And you go, well, you know what? Take my brother. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us have it. So we can continually then take those things to Christ and say, Christ, I can't do it. I can't be righteous by myself. And, and so I put it upon you. And so the word of God says, if, if we sin, confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we live in communion with Jesus because we can continually take the junk that's in us and the situations and so on, and we can pray about those things and say, Jesus, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I don't like this. I mean, I do it all the time. You know, Jesus, I don't like that. I don't like some of the stuff that I think and some of the things that I do. I just don't like them. Well, I take those things as Jesus, and I trust him that he took my sin upon his shoulders and that he imputes righteousness to me. Does that make me permanently righteous? I never have to pray again? No. That's justification. Sanctification is that we become in practice what we already are. We are justified before God. We are righteous because of what Jesus has done. Now we, be, we live a life of, of, of that righteousness becoming a part of our lives, becoming like Jesus in every way, in our thoughts and our actions and and emotions and everything, we become more like Jesus. That's what sanctification, that's why, that's why we're here. We are, we are here because we want our heart to be conformed to Jesus. We want our will to be conformed to Jesus. We want our mind to be conformed to Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. And here we are, Lord, a whole bunch of sinners. And we cannot earn our own righteousness. We can't do it. We don't have the stuff. Uh, we wish we could. Sometimes we try. We try to be righteous. But Lord, we can't do it. And we, but we trust in you that you from the beginning of time, um, you, you had this plan, Lord, that your son would take upon himself the sins of the world. My sin, your sin, all of our sin. He would take that upon himself on the cross and he would give to us, he would impute to us your righteousness and a righteousness of God so that we have 
access to you. And we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. We can come boldly to you, Lord, because of what Jesus did, not because of what we've done. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, for the sight in the Old Testament that told us what was coming forward, even though not everyone understood it. And then we thank you for the gift of your Son, who was your plan, was your Lamb, and who gave his life to forgive us of our sins, and who continues to faithfully um, forgive us and to give us the strength to know that you are God and that all, all that comes came from you, including that son. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen.